Attention, citizens. It's time for Super Pulp Science. This is Super Pulp Science, where we talk about how genre gets made. I am sitting at a table with my long-suffering co-hosts, who are all drawing at the same time. They don't want to be here, I don't think. Sam what? is just huh? Ret- <laughs> huh? Huh? What? I'm sorry. I... Sam has just returned from the void. Mm-hmm. Justin has just returned from the Vancouver. The convoid. And I would like to talk to both of you about the ends of things. The ends of all things, maybe? No, no just, just some one thing. Just some things. So, so other things talk about your things. recent ending, Sam. Well, uh, so the last time we spoke, I was in the void, in the writing void, um, which is a, a place that a lot of writers and a lot of creators get stuck in, um, especially when there's a deadline and when you're trying to finish a very big project. So here I am. I'm back. I'm trying to readjust to being around people again. I did not leave my house for about five straight days. And in those five days, mm-hmm. how many words did you write? Oh, my Lord. About 40,000. 40,000 words Straight. in five days. Mm-hmm. So just for some context, 50,000 words is just about a novel. Mm-hmm. Yes, which is what we, we kind of talked about, uh, yeah. what the what the size so thought, of those word counts. I'll just do that in a week. I just, I really was in the zone. And by in the zone, I meant under the gun. <laughs> <laughs> at um, a deadline. At a deadline. Um, so I finished a trilogy, which I started writing in 2013 with Scion of the Fox. And, oh, we got some, uh, we got some good Foley going on because Justin's crinkling up some pen caps. Um, we got some packets. new brush pens recently. Sorry about that. Yes, no, that's okay. Oh, it's good. It's good for relaxing. Um, so yes, I finished this book, which is book three, and oh, yeah, it was just, I can't even, I can't even put it to words, because I use them all in the book, <laughs> um, but My words have been used. it was quite exhausting, but it was kind of, there was, I was just tunnel visioning it. So I want to ask you some practical things then, about sure. writing that much in that short of a time. Um, how did you eat and sleep and like was there some supports in place did your yes so my just like my wonderful husband who is just he loves cleaning and he loves <laughs> he just he absolutely loves it so he was like vacuuming behind me as i'm just like <laughs> and everyone's dying on my page and um yes he made lots of coffee uh, which actually I need to take a break from coffee, I think, because I think I've given myself an ulcer. <laughs> but, uh, um, so I had those supports in place, but also it's, um, you kind of enter a survival mode where I was not hungry, and did not require anything. <laughs> I was just bashing just through the jungle. Surviving on fear, deadline fear. Essentially. I've been there. Yeah, been and there. It's, more than, it's more than deadline fear. It's just I was really into just doing it and being in those characters' voices and seeing the action through and um, as I spoke about earlier I wrote this book a lot out of sequence so I was filling in gaps and then rereading it and being like wow it all hangs together this is crazy it's like I planned it this way no so do you find that you get a sort of um, <clears throat> a, like a trance like state yeah, I find sure. that if I'm near the end and I like the last 40 pages or something I of a comic book and I do it say For in a month sure. I'll just you don't I can't. have the luxury of doubt, doubting yourself. That's you right. just have to finish it because yeah. not finishing it is not an option. Right. Yeah, you just continue to keep faith in your intent and the plan that you had, if you had one, and you just do it. And then when I finished it, I actually finished it on Friday, and I just took a day 
like an, an absolute full day where I did not look at it, did not read it. And then when I came back to it, I was, you get these moments of, I don't remember putting this down, but here it is. So that's nice. Um, that's not sustainable, I don't, I don't think. <laughs> I'm just going to put that out there. It sounds like, oh, look at you, auteur, Right, you would just lady. slide into madness if you had to do that Yeah, forever. which is what you're doing. Right. You are sliding in and out of madness. I like having one of those a year. Yeah, mm-hmm. so do I. Yeah. At least oh, one sure. a year is yeah, If I don't have one yeah. a year, I feel like... Less um, of a creative yeah, I'm person. Yeah, doing something. Right. Yeah. It's, to like, right, it's like driving full throttle, right? You have yeah. to like get mm-hmm. it into the red zone just once, and you feel mm-hmm. like you've... Really. I feel like college was like a nonstop that. For sure. Yeah. yeah. But that's because in college you have no proper coping mechanisms. You're building them you're by building, suffering. Yeah, you're figuring them out, yeah. <laughs> by suffering. We used to, uh, we were on the third floor or the fifth floor? Fifth floor. Yeah, it's been a while. Ten years since I graduated. Yeah. Um, so we were on the fifth floor, and uh, it's a really nice uh, facility. Everything's key cards and stuff like that, but you get kicked out at a certain point at, in the night, and you have to go home. So when we were at crunch time in third year, um, security would come and look in the door, and if we were still in there, we'd get kicked out. Uh-oh. So we found out that if we put a piece of black Mayfair over the window in the door, it looks like it's just a pitch black room. So security would come and see that it was dark in there and Someone just continue the on their off. way. Continue. Meanwhile, there's like 10 like sleep-deprived, like drunk-on-coffee graph designers just finishing up the projects. Yeah. Well, that's, well, yeah. you have to do what you have to do. Yeah, that's a <laughs> yeah. super good security. Yeah, but also, like, what the, what is the crime that they're committing? Yeah, <laughs> just determination, too working yeah. too hard. The other thing, you, because Darn. it was all key cards and stuff, you couldn't go to the bathroom after a certain time because once a door is opened, oh, then they know. Then they know the... those doors aren't supposed to be being opened right now. So. so, did you guys just stay around the clock and then went back when the key card system was back in regular traffic time? You would exit, or did you make a everyone leave at once so the door only opened? once uh we just we worked until the next day when people started arriving and that usually that next day was like presentation day so we were just working right up to the presentation You're just still day. there yeah what's left behind that door horror no normal mind can imagine i was noticing on twitter recently a lots of people commenting number of different big name games are dropping right away and have dropped recently. And a bunch of those same Twitter accounts were complimenting their staffs and programmers and dev crews for all the crunch that they've put in, right? And for those of you who don't know, crunch is when you basically demand of your staff to do what Justin just described, live at work until the game ships or the book ships, or the comic ships. You just don't get to go home. No. So we're talking about it as if it's so great. <laughs> because we do it, yeah, we don't do it that often. But I also feel like there's this, oh, I don't know what to call it, like almost a hypocrisy where we're talking about how, you know, when we work all the time and when we put our nose to the grindstone and, oh, what creative joy we get out of it. But then if you were in a workplace environment and your job in t- wanted you to do that you should say no you should not do crunch if your job is asking you to do crunch you should say no we have those trade shows we're just hypocrites we have like the comic cons like the amount of work effort and like craziness that we experience in four days if you're in an office you don't have that and we're doing that 20 plus times a year 
That's true. We work yeah. about 40 hours in three days when we do it that way. It's like physically, mentally, everything is just sucked out of you. It's, it's a draining experience. So I think because we have that, I don't feel as bad about not having as many crunches. No, but what I'm saying is in a lot of creative industries like film, no. video games, comics, crunch is sort of a standard if you're working for the quote-unquote big leagues. But should it be? Should be compensated. Like that, that, yeah, you should be compensated, but you're not usually. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and the creation is its own reward, kind of like just what you just did, Sam. You just worked super hard. Mm-hmm. Maybe people will like the book. But on there's something no way to that know. I created, that I liked, that came from me, not on a massive project that was like, you know, someone else's IP where you're being forced to kind of jump into a mine shaft for someone else's sake. So I was, you know, I was happy to do that because it was, I was being a quote unquote slave to my own work. Right. But when it comes to having to do it for someone else, that does that shift? Does that change? Well, see my relationship with crunch is, uh, individual and then anecdotal. So anecdotally, we will maybe leave the studio out of it, but we are in the same building as a, another, um, animation studio. And you know when it's crunch because everyone's outside smoking and they they all look really angry and upset and they just anger smoke their way through their (laughs) cigarettes and then they charge back into the building and it's round the clock. Like you can just see people. I try to take the stairs as much as possible, but when I don't, there's always somebody taking the elevator up to the third floor and I always secretly judge them because they just got back from smoking. Should do a little bit of exercise. I'm a big advocate of the stairs, so it bugs me. Quit. This, I didn't bring up their smoking to try and shame them no, into different life choices. No, we're shaming them now. No. Oh, boy, here comes Justin, <laughs> the Surgeon General. <laughs> oh, my God. No, my only point is that they're clearly managing their stress in the only way that they have the luxury of, which is taking a smoke break. We've and there's also... a lot of people out there. Okay, so here's my other observation. A lot of people are out there during the smoke break who don't smoke. Because it's the only 15 minutes they'll get otherwise of break. I think the other thing that kind of ties into this a bit, we've been to that studio before, and it reminded me in ways of a, like a casino. There are no windows. There are no clocks. Like it's a timeless void. Like I could totally see, mm-hmm. like especially in some of the rooms, like once you shut yourself in there, you could work for 10, 12 hours without. And not know it. And, and just, not yeah. Yeah. Sure. No connection. But is that time. a good thing? We need to, we need to <laughs> circle back around. That's what I'm coming back is <laughs> that I'm finding I feel a complicated relationship with this idea that we as creative people are always saying, you know, work for yourself, put in the extra time, you know, work around the clock because it's for you. And if somebody is in a parallel creative field, mm-hmm. they might be taking that as like, well, that's how I get ahead at my other job. The crunch isn't just specific to the creative world, though. People in like accounting offices, I'm sure, have to. And trading offices. But most and, of those places oh, yeah. pay you overtime. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, of course, in these fields, it's completely undervalued that right. idea of I'm not going to go home until this job is done. Um, and that's the expectation. And if you aren't willing to meet it, well, don't worry. There are 20 other people behind you waiting for the chance mm-hmm. yeah. to enter the crunch. Um, and I think because this world has shifted. Um, the creative world, I mean, where there is a lot more creative-owned content and a lot of those people are leaving those abusive environments that some of those companies are having to, they are having to compensate and they are having to change the model because there are 
while there might be a lot of artists who are willing to come in or a lot of filmmakers and, and do that hard, horrible slog, um, there are a lot who are leaving it and a lot who are vocal about it and very public about who is mistreating who. Yeah. Was, uh, that <clears throat> Sausage Party movie, mm -hmm. there was... The animators for the Sausage Party, Sausage, sausage Fest? What say Sausage. Sausage. Say sausage. Three times fast. Sausage Party or Fest, whichever, whatever the movie was called. Um, it came out after the film dropped that uh, it was kind of almost like an abusive like work relationship with the animators and the production company. And they were just worked to the bone and not compensated not for all the overtime. But they got the movie done in time. Um, but yeah, it was didn't sound like it was ideal. So some workplaces, I know one in particular, uh, we'll bring some of those people on the podcast too. They have shifted their dev team to a four-day work week. So right. that crunch spills into the Friday. Mm -hmm. So that when it's crunch time, they're only working a full week. And when it's not, they get Fridays off. They still do the full week's worth of work during those four days. And so let me they, guess, they still manage to meet their deadlines. They do manage to meet their deadlines. Yes. Um, how at European. least apocryphally they do. <laughs> yeah, how European. <laughs> um, and the other thing that some companies are doing is giving development time for their uh, dev teams to work on their own projects, which I think is a really cool thing. Like one day a month or two or three days a month, the whole team will work on somebody else's game mm -hmm. that they own. Creatively. So it actually builds a bond. It builds a bond in the team, and they know that and a like, trust in the yeah. people who are overseeing them. And I know it sounds that's very. Not, that's how we got Gmail. Like a, a Google employee on same kind of thing. They have X amount of time per week to work on their own things, and that's where Gmail came from. Was a Google employee Gmail. like? I hope that's that true. Yeah. And Twitter was just somebody's like side project too. I think mm -hmm. it's a dumb idea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so now we're going to enter our segment where Justin hates the internet. <laughs> what else do you hate on the internet, Justin? So angry this morning. I don't know yeah, what's why? happening. Finish, Drink your coffee. Finish that Americano. Quite a good scene, isn't it? One man crazy, three very sane spectators. The reason why Justin is all used up <laughs> is because <laughs> he's just come from I don't know how many shows in a row. And he's at the end now. We have one show left for Justin's convention year. Yeah. His 10-year anniversary at C4 Comic-Con. So there's Which an end nice. to a gauntlet. Yeah. But is that why he's so bitter? No, <laughs> no, no. He's always like that. Just, I don't know. Talking about things I hate this morning. So just letting it loose. Just letting it loose. Why don't we talk about some of the experiences you've had during your year of working super hard in your crunch times on the weekend, Justin, where other people decided how your setup should be. We do, yeah, 20 to 30 shows a year. We've kind of seen it all. We've seen um, the biggest convention centers in New York City and San Diego. We've seen hotel basements. We've seen dripping, like, old, like, ex-hockey rink. Like, we've set up tables there. We've kind of... we've. We've been around, you know, and we've set up in all kinds of conditions. And after a while, you kind of fine tune your setup. You know how it's going to look and how it works and what used to take like three hours and two people. I can now do in 45 minutes like efficiently and it looks better than when it did take three hours. Um, recently, one of the bigger shows we've we've been doing um, has implemented 
some strict rules and guidelines on what you're allowed to set up and what you're not allowed to. And we've done shows like that before. The, one of the big ones, a lot of anime shows have very, very strict guidelines for height and what you can... Uh, basically, height. Height is always the big one, it seems. And also the uh, craft fair kind of yes. things, like the make-it shows. They also have very strict guidelines for how your setup should be. So do check them. Yeah. Our frustration comes, I think, I'll speak for Justin in this case so that it stays polite. Our frustration comes when a show arbitrarily changes those guidelines uh, or begins to enforce guidelines that were never enforced before unevenly across the show floor. That's where the main frustration is. So if you're, say, told when you come in that you can have a 10-foot setup and then you set up everything to 10 feet and then someone comes in and says, no, it's 8 feet, actually, after you're already set up. That Which can isn't be... too big of a deal for us. We, can, we have telescopic stands that can be easily lowered, but for some people that is like the most devastating thing to Especially hear. Especially if they've built because a specific 10-foot display so they either have to take everything down or leave or have a big argument or you know it's so it's frustrating to watch and those all things. those things happen <laughs> yeah, and all those we've seen all of those things happen they seem to be happening with more frequency like you said lately mm -hmm. um, and they've also become not just an enforcement but like a threat yeah right like we will remove you if you don't do this so the, there's one guy who i don't mind one guy sometimes uh a group of people who will come through uh, that you never argue with, and that person is always the fire marshal. When that person comes through and is giving guidelines and making notes or making statements, I'm happy to listen and I'm always thrilled that, to see those people on site because, you know, should something calamitous occur, they know what they're doing. But it's when other people are putting arbitrary rules that don't match for everybody. So, like, for example, a specific example, if you're an exhibitor, Right, if you've booked an exhibitor space, paid a there's more the, money. A slightly bit, yeah, you've paid <laughs> slightly more money, and you now have no height restriction. But ten feet away, someone who booked an artist alley table now is on this eight foot height restriction. Now to the and under late, a microscope was kind of the vendors. Nobody was really checking checking up on them whatsoever. But yeah. artist alley, we had people kind of coming around every five minutes to make sure we were following. Rules. And that might not seem like a big deal to people who are listening to the show, but if you have a giant crowd of people who are on average six feet tall, then the amount of display space you have above that crowd is how you're found and therefore how you, your livelihood is maintained. Yeah, the, one of the big frustrations for me is I've slowly built up this hundreds of dollars worth of display material which is supposed to be at least 10 feet in the air. Right. And when I have to bring it down, I'm actually, my banners are starting to drag on the ground. I have this dye sublimation cloth that's like a nice bright white, which is now dragging on the floor. Yeah. And so I am not prepared for a, a short setup. And I'm worried that I'm starting to damage my display because I have to right. keep it down. So now on the plus side, we are at the end of that year-long run and we have lots of contacts at those shows so we can double check what the real requirements are and make some adjustments as necessary mm -hmm. so that's all that's you can fine. also apply for variance right which i've done before and all i really had to do was kind of explain my experience and my lack of things falling over or yeah the height people. restriction <laughs> is a reasonable one because if you're 
not very good at setting up a display, then something big and tall could collapse. How often do we see somebody's booth fall over? Once you every two it. shows? You do hear you, it. You do hear it. Yeah, it does happen. <laughs> yeah. It does happen. Like a tree falling in the woods. Yeah. <laughs> it usually happens during setup, though. Yeah. I have never seen a display fall over during... But then maybe it's because of the excellent work of those people double-checking. Right? Oh, so, you know, boy. it all comes around. The worst this. situation I ever saw was somebody's display fell backwards and toppled over somebody else's. Like, it went... It fell back. <laughs> Horrible domino and it, Yeah. <laughs> Ironically, Justin flailed wildly <laughs> while he told this story and nearly Smashed knocked the lamp, lamp over lamp. behind it's him. It's my lamp. I like this lamp. You were talking about how this is the end of Justin's <laughs> on here. His patience. The end of his patience. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and like that was, like you said, that takes, that takes a lot of energy too, like more than just staying in the creative pit. Because at least when you're in the creative pit, you're like, I'm doing this and it is my vision and this is great. But now you have to go out and sell that vision to everyone and that's even another level of being in the void um, but he smiled all the way through the void so if any of you met justin while at any of these shows i'm yeah, sure to your credit looked, despite your frustrations with a number of these things it didn't show didn't for show. any of your customers or even any of the people at the show that you were interacting they were just so happy know? to buy your gundams there because, was there was one group at like the very end of the vancouver show when i was just like burnt out and done and it was during cleanup like the show was over I had stuff on my tables. I was had my headphones in. I was starting to take down my display. And people came up and started, like, they moved stuff away so they could open my portfolio and start going through it. And then they asked, and I had my prices right beside, and they asked how much things were. And without taking out the headphones, they just pointed at it and went back to work. And I realized how rude that was, so I, I stopped what if I was doing. If you're listening, Justin, I'm sorry. feel bad. <laughs> I think they were vendors, too. I was just, I was burnt out, and I was so done. And I just didn't want to... I don't want to make sales anymore. <laughs> wow. <Yeah. laughs> Coming to you live, Justin from Mount Privilege. Too tired of making I know, sales. I know. I know. I and know, that's, I know. as soon as I did it, I realized how selfish and silly I was being and how lucky I am to be doing what I'm doing. Like at this, yeah. Oh, he turned it into a learning moment. Yeah. He did. Yeah. He did. Yes. There's a lot of um, learning moments. But it's a slog. How many did you do this year? I mean, if, do you know off the top of your head? It's like around 30? 33, 35, mm -hmm. something like so that. So hold on, I'm just going to do some quick math. So uh, everyone, there are only 52 weeks in the year. Yeah. I just want to remind you of that. Um, <laughs> Not Those are quite a few smaller shows as well, like some mm -hmm. little craft sales, some two-day local things, some one-day local things. Mm -hmm. It's 30, let's call it 32 events. So okay. if you work 52 weeks of the year, not everyone does, but let's just, for easy math, and you work 40 hours a week, then you're doing 2,000 hours of work, 2,080 hours of work. You did 30 shows times 40 hours in those weekends. So that's almost half. That's 1,200 hours of work of in just... Just shows, and that's just, not including... just 30 weekends. Making the art, making the books. Right. Which, yeah, the shows are just the tip of the iceberg, right? Mm -hmm. It's 80% of the work happens before a show. Are you a workaholic, Justin? Maybe. This episode has become an intervention. <laughs> Are you a workaholic, Sam? Yes. 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 Um, but I am a workaholic towards uh, not having to be a workaholic. Because what in addition to doing this... Wait a minute. And wait a I minute. I could quit smoking. I just <laughs> don't want to. Um, because in addition to this book, like, now the book... Yeah, sure, I handed it in yesterday. 
well, I've got all these clients who I've got to finish up for and get into. Uh, so I'm also doing client work at the same time. And clients. I know. So Justin and I had this conversation. Uh, I don't, Greg, Greg wasn't there. No. Um, we were just in the office, just shooting the proverbial creative shit. And um, I was talking to him about how I would like to move away from doing clients. And I would just like to work on my own work. So the harder that I work in the hours I should be sleeping on my own stuff, the closer it becomes to not having to support myself by right. working on other people's projects. Yes. Which is the ideal. That's the ideal for a lot of creative people. And you guys have sort of, you guys have gotten there. I know Justin is there now. See, and I'm looking for more, well, I don't think of them as clients, but I want the right collaborators. That's mm -hmm. what I'm deeply hunting for right now. I'm spending a lot of time at shows looking for and reaching out to just the right people who have just the right sorts of projects that it doesn't feel like client work. It feels like two, you know, two people or three people or four people all working together towards the same goal. And for me, the main reason for that is that I want to spend more time at the studio and less time traveling. I'd like to bring my show count, total show to count down to 15 or 20 of just like my favorite, um, uh, favorite's the wrong word. There's, uh, <laughs> there's like a diagram where profitability, um, like leads, enjoyability, and stress. There's We've like actually made this spot. chart before. Yeah, there's yeah. a sweet spot for what a show, where a show is, and I, I don't mind some stress if there's lots of follow-up and leads, and I don't mind um, there being no leads if there's a great amount of profitability, and you know, like you, you turn that, you turn those knobs all for over. For example, um, New York is probably the most stressful, most work, most effort, yeah. but it's also like one of the, not only like is it a great show profit-wise, but we come back with projects every year because that's where publishers and big companies are kind of looking yeah. for artists. On a three point, I tend to judge things on three point scale. So it's three out of three in all yeah. categories, the Whereas New York show. Vancouver is uh, like, it's a smaller show, but the people are amazing and the city's incredible. Um, there's not a whole lot of effort or stress there because we have a great printer in um, Vancouver over the edge printing. Sage, Thank you, Sage is, yeah, amazing. We would do all our printing with him if we possibly could. Um, but yeah, we, it'd be hard to drop that show, even though like, if you look at it like numbers wise, it might make sense, but it's such a enjoyable show in all the other aspects. <laughs> Let's Clients. talk about, uh, Ron and Indy. Oh, Fable Creative. Yeah. Fable yeah. Creative. We've been talking to them a lot this weekend. They just got into one of a kind in the Christmas oh, show, which is 11 Toronto. days. Yep. Yep. We looked into that, remember? Oh yeah. yeah. It's 11 days and you're building, you you're building to, much more than what you'd expect at a con. There's carpet, there's lighting. It's an entirely different And beast. the way that you apply for it is you have to apply with like almost OCAD drawings of exactly what you're going to have. Yeah, Ron like, blew their socks off. I saw the drawings. Yeah. He oh did, my goodness. Like Ron is an amazing technical artist. Mm -hmm. His drawings were so pretty. He should sell his booth set up as a print. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you guys have never actually attended a one-of-a-kind show, have you? No. Um, so I've gone as a spectator um, when I lived in Toronto, and it is enormous. It is like New York Comic Con, but... I don't know. Like <laughs> for like, a shopping spree. But yes, because everyone's out there trying to get their Christmas stuff, but also supporting local artisans. And that's the, the whole point of the show is that you have to have product there that 
can't be purchased in a store, isn't widely available because they're creating an environment of exclusivity. Yeah, yeah the one of a kind is they their don't brand prints, and their motto. They don't want books. You can't yeah. do books, which kind of shocked me. I thought kids' books would work there, but no, because it's a reproduction. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, original paintings. So if you're doing screen print, hand-pulled screen prints, which that works because those are creative's indiv- yeah. new new bag of tricks is a lot of screen printed posters that look amazing. It's a fine art. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. So that's going to be interesting. Yeah. It'll I'm be, looking forward to the reports from that. It would I'm be a nice to have them, them on the show in. and to see kind of the outcome of that because 11 days, like I can't even, yeah, we're going to get yeah. them on the show. Four days is hard enough on me and I'm not even a seasoned like person with a setup for those <laughs> kind of shows. I'm just kind of getting started. I know started. Uh, Leonard Taylor does that. He's a fashion designer here in Winnipeg. Mm-hmm. He's done that one of a kind show. And does he bring a crew? Like, or He has just, a crew. Yeah. yeah, he has a crew. And he, I mean, I only spoke with him briefly about it, but he also does one of a kind. So uh, they hand make all their clothes. So right. each of those pieces are one of a kind. And then he also does um, one of a kind paintings on a number of the items. So he's wow. there painting so on he's the working while he's, he's there. Right. Yeah, it's, I was just going to ask, like, that's prime time. Yeah. It's a huge chunk of time where you could be actually working on new stuff. And are they back? I would assume that a lot of the creators at these shows are, that they are working on their stuff. They must be, especially if something's doing well and mm-hmm. you have, you're the only person that can make it. you got to mm-hmm. be on site to make and more. And this show, for its length, is very busy. And it's highly advertised and highly pushed all around the city on subways, on buses on billboards on the sides of buildings on everything nice. yeah so ron and indy have been they've been doing prints at comic cons for a while um but they've always been um their style is very uh kind of art deco and and very i know it's it's different and i i really really like it but they've been also kind of I feel like they've been waiting for something like this. They've been wanting to try a show that wasn't wasn't a Comic-Con because especially now that they've been doing screen-printed posters, those look amazing, but most people don't quite understand the amount of effort. And and at that show, I think it'll show... And I think, yeah, yeah I think One of a Kind is going to be a financial and professional windfall for them. Ron and Indy have a precision in their art making that I completely cover, covet and admire. Like the, it's and like I think that that opposite will really, of you and yes, you know, I kind of just, <laughs> you know, I kind of, if it looks a little bit rough, that's when I'm happiest and they are the opposite on the opposite end of the spectrum and everything is just has this perfect clean line and there's nothing, um, undecided about any of their pieces. And so if you're listening, Ron and Andy, we love you. Yeah. Fabled creative. Look them up. They've got amazing, amazing stuff. Seeing a cemetery on a night like this can stir in the mind the best ideas for a good horror story. So, you finished a novel. Mm -hmm. You finished your con season. What do you got left? What about you? What about me? What have you finished Um, lately? Oh, I guess I finished. Yeah, what have you done? (laughs) (laughs) Now that we've accomplished everything, there's nothing left for Gregory. (laughs) It's true, there's nothing left. I finished, um, well, it seems like a long time ago already, even though it was only a couple of months. But I finished Baby Metal. I'm holding copies of it Tell now. us about what you promised to do in those books and how that's going to work. Oh, so Have we y- talked about that yet? No, we haven't. Oh, and it's not finished. It's just ahead. It's looming. Yeah, it is actually just coming up. Okay, so ladies and gentlemen, um, <laughs> for those of you who don't know, I did a graphic novel called Apocrypha, which uh, The Legend of Baby Metal, and um, it sold through its distributor level very well, and so... There was enough demand that Z2 Comics and Amuse Group USA decided that they would publish a special edition of this book. Their special editions, uh, Z2 did one for Murder Ballads, the uh, book they did with the Black Keys creators. 
Uh, and it is a, just a thing of beauty. It's this enormous 12 by 18, huge, like the kind of, it looks like a book you'd find in a magic shop of spells and rituals. They're just so, it's like an artisan edition, basically. I don't feel quite worthy of it, but I said, why don't I, because I didn't know how many of them they would have ordered. So I said, why don't I agree to draw in each of them so that there's a little special touch as they come off the line. And so they did a print edition of 500 of them, which is not that many. You can do quick 500 quick drawings, oh, no big deal. Oh, God. But <laughs> even... Because we do that with all our books. We yeah, we draw in our books all the time. Tonk, and Rustwater, no all the imagination manifestos. Yeah. I draw in everything all the time. But then when we did the math, even if I spend five minutes per sketch, just five minutes per sketch in every book, that's 40 hours of drawing straight. No bathroom, no eating, no nothing. So um, I will return from the void uh, when that is done and tell you about how it's going to go. I'm actually looking forward to it. So right now the plan is to, uh, they're going to put me and my family up in a secret mountain fortress and I'm going to work on the drawings there while my, because it's a whole week where I'll have to be where the books are. Yeah, because they don't want, they're not going to ship 500 books here and then right. ship them back to be. Yeah, also yeah, so because the books are huge and yeah. very heavy, they couldn't yeah. do that. So the logistics of it, it's easier to move um, a man made of sticks and his family to where the books are <laughs> than it is a pallet full of books to uh, the long man. I often wonder, like, some of those really big books like that, are they done just kind of. Um, like, are they done to make money? Like, do they make money on those? Or is it almost like a... Is it a prestige thing? Yeah. Well, I think, um, you know, the f the truth is that if you have a demand for the book and you can print them all at the same time, then there is, you know, you can, there's a cost benefit to producing a book of that size. You really got to have that audience. But the audience to really in. has to be in place. And, you know, we're fast figuring out that the baby metal fans are like the best fans in the world. My worry is that somebody who has already tracked down a bunch of different editions of the book and then also wants to buy this one, I guess this is me urging you not to do that. If you want me to sketch in your book and you already bought one off of Amazon, don't worry about it. Find me at a show and I'll draw in your book, no problem. I have a few books on my uh, big cartel that I'll draw in and send them to you too if you happen to be over the ocean. Gregory um, can often be found at his house on... <laughs> you <monster. laughs> um, yeah, uh, because again, we had this, we had a conversation at the creative level um, and on the business level of whether or not it would be seen as a, like you said, like as just some money grab product. Mm -hmm. But if you've seen the Murder Ballads edition, it's it's immediately holded and it changes the experience with the book. It's it's done at the same ratio that I do the pages, so it's a twelve by eighteen book. So the art is sort of at its full size. Um, the color is always a little bit better on a book like that. Just because when a book runs, you know, thousands and thousands of copies, there's a little bit, it's a 2 or 3% change yeah. usually happens in the grading. Um, but yeah, so I'm, I'm as interested and excited to see what they look like actually as you guys are. It comes with a bunch of prints as well. Like there's oh, yeah. a number of uh, one-of-a-kind prints that will be in the book as well. So... When I, uh, when I worked as a graph designer, um, I didn't work on too many of them, but the, uh, the other designer worked on quite a few financial reports for some bigger companies. 
And it's something for like kind of a stockholders meeting. And these companies just basically throw money at this printed booklet. So I've sat it's in on those the, meetings. I've held those things. They yeah, are. it's on like the glossiest, thickest paper with um, like embossed and spot UV and basically every little thing that the printer can do to like kind of enhance the book, they they put into it. So it's a huge amount of money to print a small amount of of these things. But I always kind of wanted to do that where it was just like. Do something really posh. Yeah. You know, low run. Well, hopefully we'll have something worthy of that in our uh, near future. Um, the other thing that I finished recently was I did a illustration for Canada's History Magazine, uh, the Corivo, which is this amazing legend of a witch in a cage that descends upon you in the woods and then like lays across your back and makes it hard to escape right it's um and what's neat about it uh and maybe a, a little bit poignant is that for a long time this legend has been around the quebec area uh and they recently uncovered canada's history magazine is sort of pioneering the story uh they found the cage for the longest time people said no what? you know they never did that in canada to you know this didn't happen we didn't have this witch trial thing that went on in New England it didn't really happen in Canada so like it might be a story that uh, a settler brought with them and it just kind of got transposed but no they pretty sure they found records of the event now and uh, I don't want to spoil the article for you you should definitely check it out in the new issue of Canada's History Magazine but as you can probably suspect it turned out it was just an innocent woman <laughs> who suffered greatly. So if there is a ghost of the Corivo, you probably deserve whatever horror she has to settle upon you because she has been oh, good. hanging innocently in this cage in the woods for low those many years. Lovely. Anyway, so I'm going to do a cool <laughs> illustration about it. And it was a really fun. We're going to bring the um, art director on to talk about that process. It was a really great... A process because it had lots of historical documents to go with it they had pictures of the cage to go with it and so we had got to look at how other artists had interpreted the Corivo legend up until that point absent historical record and then combined the images from the historical record into a new illustration that sort of depicted what the folklore would be if it had the facts right which is kind of an interesting twist we invented an image of a ghost based on true historical facts. Canada's History Magazine, ladies and gentlemen. You yeah. should check it out. So I finished that recently, and now I get to start on Good Boys. Fool humans, there is no escape. What it kind of comes back around to is all of these things that we've finished, it doesn't mean we're actually done like no. anything. It doesn't mean we're skipping off into the sunset and there is a perceived nothingness ahead. It, we've done one thing, and now we're all moving on, on to, to the, the next, next thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, literally as soon as I handed in this manuscript, I was writing something else, something new. <laughs> and you have to. You yeah. have to. Yeah, so I've got uh, Good Boys I'll be working on for Portage Main Press. I've got a two pitch projects that I'm working on right now. We're working on a play, producing a play. Uh, Justin and I are working on animation. Uh, we have a horror movie pitch in with some producers. Mm -hmm. We've got lots of stuff. I just came up with an Infinity War poster I'm really excited about. 
He literally is. He was sketching while we were talking. So I'm going to work on that. And then I've got Dragon Nanny, kind of the next book in the Cassian Tonk, Rust and Water, uh, Silent Guardian series. Uh, we've been working on that one kind of on the back burner for quite a while. So I'm excited to bring that to the front of the stove. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the exciting thing about nailing yourself to the void cross is that once you've ripped yourself off of it, you can build a new one. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I mean, and it, it it's actually very, it's very interesting. The, um, the, a huge motivating factor for finishing The Brilliant Dark for me was that I'm so excited to do something right? new now. Yeah, you get super excited about yeah. a thing being yeah. finished because your new thing starts. Oh, yeah. gosh. Yeah, and I mean, that, that is kind of the pure reason for this pursuit for all of us, I think, is that, yeah, there's another thing coming. And while you're kind of killing yourself on one project, at least it shows you that you're capable of, of finishing it and seeing something through, which just makes, it just opens up so much down the road ahead. So when you, oh man, there's, there's so much I want to unpack in the emotions of that thing. I don't even know where to start. Um, but let's come back around to being workaholics. Is this all this <laughs> is? Is this all this is? I don't know. Like, what is the? It is. It's a rhetorical question. But what is the difference between um, workaholic and just driven passion yeah. for the thing that you love doing? I think who suffers? I yeah. If we're yeah. if people right. in your life are suffering because of it, it's one of the, it, when it affects other people. I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So are other people affected by how much you two work? Well, luckily, I'm dating a workaholic, so. So it works out for you. <laughs> that's, and that's the, re- no. Um, I'm, yeah, that's also, the secret? My husband's doing his master's this year, so he's also working as much as I am. Are you worried about when he's done, though? That's something I think about, like, when the master's is done and he has, like, a normal person job. Mm-hmm. He'll still be, he'll still have a normal person job. He'll still have a job, so he'll be gone and I can be at home. <laughs> so it, I think it'll still work out and we'll meet in the middle for dinner. <laughs> um, but no, I think that because he has a similar um, work ethic to me that we can both empathize with each other because there was a time when he was working way more than I was and I mm. never saw him and I was not working the same level and I had to kind of deal with that. And so you kind of go through those balances and it doesn't ever stay static. And when it is static, maybe you're retired by then. Um, are you? Oh, are you? <laughs> if you ever God. quit, I'm never going to quit. God. But we've been talking about that. Like the, um, the shows kind of are a lot of work and they take you kind of away from your family for the weekend. Uh, so when you, Gregory, were talking about picking up, finding collaborators and picking up other projects, um, I think that's a really good idea because in lieu of a show that you kind of get that, um, that project and that experience from that client rather than doing that show. That's the hope. That's, that's the, the hope. hope. If it's the right ones. If I can't find the right ones, then I have the shows. Like there's a, you know, we're in a fortunate position um, as able-bodied, fairly healthy individuals to just... Good-looking, too. To keep keep (laughs) pushing in that direction. Um, But, you know, like, if that were to suddenly change, you know, um, if one of those shipping pallets collapsed on me and I had no choice but to type away with two fingers, I'd have a much different... Because we were so boots on the ground right now, if something like that were to happen, you would have to take a step back... We've gone to so many different cities. We've made so many uh, friends and hopefully fans that we have enough of a fan base that if you were to just work from home and and 
try another venue sitting here, hopefully we've built up an audience that's ready for it. Yeah, and my co- yeah, and my my oh, my feelings about that though are also that your work is completed by the audience. Mm-hmm. So you need to do, you know, I'd like to scale back the shows, but you know, those 15 or so that I'd like to do, five of them aren't really they're not big returns on my investment to get myself there, but they are big returns in the amount of fans and people I connect with that I feel some loyalty to. I know it sounds funny, but I feel more loyal maybe to those fans in some days than I feel those fans are loyal to me. I just really want to kind of do right by them. Mm. And that's a, maybe that'll wear off, right? (laughs) Maybe that'll wear off. But for right now, I kind of, you know, like this idea, I suddenly have all of these people who are new faces showing up because of the Apocrypha book that are really taking a chance on my work for the very first time ever. I kind of feel like I owe it to them to do something special. That's where the idea of sketching in all the books came from and why, you know, like, can we give a unique experience to each person? Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Who knows where it's going to end? Who knows when? All we know is that we're just going to keep putting one foot forward into the creative void. Dun, dun, dun. So you've been drawing Infinity War layouts. You've been working on it. Is this from your new mini-comics? Thank you. Um, so before I became a writer, I was an artist. I was not going to be a novelist. I was going to be a starving artist. That's what I would run around my house as a child proclaiming with no concept of what that Even meant. Even as but a here, child, you didn't plan on making here money. Here I am. That's right. And um, I, it's amazing is I'm the reverse, mm-hmm. right? I'm doing art, but I was telling everyone, like, I'm going to be a writer. This is how I'm going to do it. No, I was was definitely, because I was really, really, at like six years old, I was super into Sailor Moon, and I was like, that is exactly what I want to do. And before actually realizing that Sailor Moon was based on a comic, I was drawing the Sailor Moon comic. I was just adapting what I was (laughs) watching on the TV. Um, And I just, I wanted to go into animation, and I wanted to do all this stuff, and I did start out with a fine arts degree, but I found... um, the structure of the program to be so stifling that it actually made me not want to do art anymore. And so I pivoted Mm. and I went to publishing and I would keep doing, I was trying, I was doing art on the side and then it just petered out. And I was, so maybe, maybe about 10 years, I haven't really devoted time to doing art too much. I've interspersed it. I've started bringing it back into my writing like because some of my books have feature my illustrations in them. Uh, but I kind of had this, I have this moment where now I'm working more in comics and I'm doing comic editing for a lot of publishing companies and for independent clients. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to do it. I always wanted to do one. I always got way too stuck in development and also just this crushing I can't do it because I haven't been doing art for so long, so I'm not. I'm going to fail anyway, so I would just shelve these things. So I'm just going to make a comic and see how it goes. Cool. I just I have a, I have my plan. I've got Paige's thumbnail. I've started the pencils, and I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to see what happens. That's um, amazing. And yeah. also that does come from spending a lot of time with Gregory and Justin and being like, if they can do it, then <laughs> yeah, they can probably do it. Well, but you're the average. Maybe you're the average. I've said this before of the five people you spend the most time with. Because I'm going to spend NaNoWriMo finishing my novel. So, uh oh, uh oh, we've cross pollinated. Mm. But what's wrong with that? No, everything's right with that. <laughs> yeah. I think that's good. Exactly, and that's what have why. I out of this? I'm trying to... <laughs> <laughs> what do I get out of this handsome, successful Justin? <laughs> um, 
Uh, and I think the thing about, <laughs> you know, we've spent this episode talking about going into this tiny little enclave and just killing yourself to finish a project. And it's such an internal thing. It's really, it's why it's really important to surround yourself with community and with other people and to see, you know, what, what they're doing and how that can benefit your, yourself, your projects. So thank you for that. Good collaboration. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this has been Super Pulp Science, where our conversation has ranged widely. And that's either good or bad. You can let us know, maybe in the comments. We've never encouraged people to leave comments. This is the first time it ever occurred to me. So if you'd like to leave us a comment, I don't even know how that works. <laughs> can you leave comments? You can do it on Twitter. You can do Isn't it on Twitter. You can also leave on, a review You can leave iTunes. reviews oh, yeah. on SoundCloud. Oh. This is cool. I'm learning so much about how to run a podcast. Uh, what episode is this? In, <laughs> 45. In, on wow. episode 45, we have learned how to encourage our listeners to communicate with us. Yeah, so please, if you if there's something you don't like, direct it to <laughs> Justin at... <laughs> yeah. yeah. Actually, yeah. I'll give you his home address. It's don't you? <laughs> Today on Super Pulp Science, we dox each other relentlessly. <laughs> And right. has this episode been brought to you by Fabled Creative with their upcoming uh, one-of-a-kind show at the, I don't even know, I don't know where it is or what it's the dates Toronto. are. It's in Toronto. You can look it up online, oneofakindshow.com. I believe it takes place in the Exhibition Center, which is kind of on the periphery of the city. It's enormous. Uh, so buy your tickets. It's where SakimiCon is happening this oh, weekend. Oh, also true. Yeah, that's yeah. happening this weekend. Yeah. We're not going. It's the first year they're doing that show, so we're... We, it's a lot of cost for us to do it, so we're kind of sitting this one out and waiting to see how it goes, and hopefully we'll be there next year. But good luck to good our luck. friend Drake, who is yeah. there right now. Yeah. Quirkylicious doesn't need luck. He's, he'll be fine. We were trying to end the podcast. We were trying. It didn't work. This has been Super Pulp Science, where we talk about how but genre wait. gets me. <laughs> oh, my God. It's like the end of Lord of the Rings right now. Mm-hmm.